This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, May 26th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Dr. B was the most well-known nationwide vaccine finder in the U.S., but did anyone actually end up getting their vaccine through the service? Plus, the artist raising awareness about the gender gap on the moon, Disneyland's $100 sandwich, and the newest Willy Wonka on the block. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. When the vaccines first started rolling out to certain populations throughout the U.S., there was immediate confusion and frustration as people tried to navigate clumsy, CAPTCHA-littered sites to secure very limited appointment slots. At the same time, we heard about vaccines going unused at various vaccination sites, so a number of savvy individuals stepped in to assist eligible people in finding appointments or finding sites with vaccines that were about to expire. There were location-specific apps, Twitter accounts and informal networks that popped up around the country. Here in New York City, Huge Ma's TurboVax became especially popular, and it's actually thanks to turning on notifications for that Twitter account that I managed to snag my own appointment once I became eligible. But perhaps the most well-known initiative, one of the few that serviced the entire nation, was Dr. B. Dr. B is a website started by entrepreneur Cyrus Masumi, the founder of ZocDoc, which allows people to sign up, input some of their relevant info about themselves, like their age, location, job, and medical conditions, and then it will alert you with a text message when there are leftover vaccines in your area. And one reason that I was particularly intrigued by Dr. B when I first heard about it is because it would prioritize people based on their eligibility status. So you wouldn't feel like you were jumping the line over someone who could maybe use that leftover vaccine more than you. Dr. B, which, by the way, was named after Masumi's grandfather, affectionately called Dr. Bubba, who worked as a doctor during the 1918 flu epidemic, received a ton of mainstream coverage earlier this year, ballooning its numbers rapidly. I was the 1,076,043rd person to sign up. And as of today, the site says that just under 2.5 million people have registered with the site. But the MIT Technology Review recently uncovered a bit of a mystery about Dr. B. Despite its popularity and its credentials, not a single person seems to have actually received a vaccine thanks to Dr. B. And personally, I only received an alert once for a vaccine available near me, and I received that the night before I was set to receive my second dose from an appointment I had booked myself. And that seems to be the case with most people who received an alert at all. They came long after they'd secured an appointment through other means, often not getting an alert from Dr. B until after their region had opened vaccines up to just about everybody anyways. The MIT Tech Review interviewed people who signed up with the service, searched through online forums, and spoke with moderators of COVID-19-focused community groups, but couldn't find anyone who had actually gotten their vaccine through Dr. B. Further, the Tech Review actually interviewed Masumi, and he wouldn't say how many vaccines the site helped provide either. So what did this site do? How did it go wrong, if indeed it did? And the bigger question, what are they now doing with our data? 
First is the matter of partnerships with vaccination sites, which is how Dr. B was able to identify leftover vaccines and then theoretically contact people nearby to receive them. The way the website is worded, you'd think it had a network of partnerships across the nation, which some of its online posts did claim. But when the site first got national media attention in March, it only had two partnerships actively going, one at a pharmacy in Arkansas and another at a vaccine hub here in Queens, New York, which at least explains why I eventually got a notification. Quoting the Tech Review, When asked exactly how large its network is, Masumi told MIT Technology Review that Dr. B does not have nationwide coverage, but has around 600 vaccination partners across 37 states, although the company declined to say who they are or which states it's active in. And those partnerships do not include national-level agreements with major chains such as CVS or Walgreens, which both said that they were not working with Dr. B at a corporate level, though Masumi says that some individual stores are Dr. B providers. 600 partners may seem extensive, but it accounts for less than 1% of the more than 80,000 U.S. vaccination sites tracked by the CDC, end quote. One reason Dr. B may have struggled to solidify more partnerships is because asking already overwhelmed vaccination sites to work with a whole other digital system would have been a tough sell. And there's also the fact that despite the highly publicized wasting of leftover vaccines, there actually weren't that many that got thrown out, according to Claire Hannon, the executive director of the Association of Immunization Managers. Quoting again, The federal Vaccines for Children program, which provides kids with shots regardless of their family's ability to pay, has an expected wastage rate of 5%, she says. Data about COVID vaccines obtained by Kaiser Health News, meanwhile, shows that the CDC recorded 182,874 COVID vaccines thrown out in the first three months vaccinations were available. Just 0.1% of the more than 147.6 million doses administered as of March 30th, end quote. So it's possible this was just another case of something vaccine-related seeming out of proportion because everyone in the world is trying to do the same thing at the same time and paying hyper-attention to it. But even more than that, 70% of recorded vaccine wastage, according to the CDC, happened at CVS and Walgreens, two companies that were not in partnership with Dr. B. Now, of course, there could be a bias there that those companies have stricter reporting rules than independent pharmacies or what have you, but still, despite how welcome the concept of Dr. B may have seemed initially, it looks like in practice there just might not have been many leftover vaccines for their system to actually offer up. But that brings us back to the question of what's next? Most vaccine finders have closed up shop, like TurboVax here in NYC, or, in the case of Vax Standby, been bought out by Dr. B. In the interview with the Tech Review, Dr. B floated ideas like working on the booster shots, partnering with mobile vaccination clinics, or helping the effort abroad. In other words, no plans whatsoever to shut down. And that kind of tracks with something the Tech Review pointed out about the difference between public health departments and private companies. The former clearly exist to serve the public, but the latter, even when they're working in health-related fields, who do they serve? Quoting again, There are rules in place under HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, intended to stop oversharing of health data. But if a company is not one of the covered entities, then the rules don't apply. And there is a well-established business model for private health companies that relies on collecting consumer health data and selling it or sharing it with third parties. 
the vast majority of these private sector companies providing these tools are not going to be HIPAA-covered entities, says Elizabeth Renaris, a tech and human rights fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Carr Center. It's this displacement of the public interest by the private sector, end quote. Dr. B is not one of the covered entities, so they don't have to adhere to HIPAA, but they claim that they voluntarily do so, as stated in their FAQ section on the site. And further, quote, Its privacy policy does lay out some comprehensive-sounding protections. The website says that it does not sell information that would identify people and only shares users' personal information with providers once they've opted in to receive a vaccine nearby. It also gives users the option to request that their personal data be deleted by sending a sequence of text messages to the service, although that fact is found halfway down the privacy policy page and couched in legalese. But the policy also gives Dr. B the right to use personal data internally for purposes other than vaccinations, and if the company gets bought, to transfer the data to the new owner. The company declined to say what happens to information from users who opt out of vaccine notifications, and its policy is equally silent on the issue. End quote. So it's neither ideal nor the most nefarious thing I've ever heard. Despite Dr. B appearing for the MIT Tech Review interview with a PR rep from a firm specializing in crisis comms and refusing to answer follow-up questions sent via email, instead responding with a few paragraphs about the good they've achieved, it still doesn't really seem like there are any ticking time bombs behind the punitive red flags. If anything, it's just kind of odd that this huge site that so many signed up for turned out to be a bit of a bust. And that's probably why they're acting a little shady, because they don't want to admit how short they fell of their goals. Dr. B may very well be genuine in their intentions, with no unspoken motives whatsoever. But it's an apt reminder about the increasingly complicated relationship between private companies and our personal data. As the Tech Review said, quote, Some Dr. B users I spoke to said that they expect information about themselves to be shared among private companies, but others said they were so desperate to protect themselves and loved ones that they didn't even consider what information they were handing over when they signed up. Renaris says it's hard enough in normal times to ask people to investigate every digital interaction to make sure they know what they're signing up for and who they're giving their data to. Add in the fear and urgency of a pandemic, and it's even more of a burden on the consumer. End quote. And it sure would be nice if we could trust the most useful tools at our disposal in our times of need. But in lieu of any kind of solution here, I just want to recommend a deeply unsettling video that Jason shared over on Kotke.org yesterday. Produced by the Financial Times and starring Lydia West and Arthur Darville, the 20-minute video has some very Black Mirror vibes to it, but sadly is entirely compliant with the existing reality of how much private companies know about us and how close their ties are to the police and government organizations. I highly recommend taking the time to watch it. Link is in the show notes. By some estimates, there are over a million craters on the moon, deep scars of impacts from other celestial objects. Just over 9,000 of those are officially recognized by the International Astronomical Union. And 1,578 of those have been named, after scientists, engineers, and explorers, according to the IAU's convention. Of the 1,578 named moon craters, just 33 are named after women. 
Bettina Forget, an artist and researcher at Concordia University, is on a mission to raise awareness about this lunar gender gap. She told the New York Times, quote, I didn't expect 50 percent. I'm not that optimistic. But 2 percent? I was really shocked. End quote. Since 2016, Forget has been drawing each one of the craters named after women as part of her Women with Impact project. Using graphite and black acrylic paint, she uses her personal telescope for visible craters and references images from NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter for craters located on the far side of the moon. Forget said of the concept, quote, A crater is an absence of matter, a void. That's a parallel with a void of women in STEM. End quote. Because that is part of the problem. It's not just that craters have traditionally been named after men, but that since the craters must be named after scientists, engineers, or explorers, and also traditionally after people no longer living, that unfortunately doesn't leave too many women to choose from. Kelsey N. Singer, a planetary scientist at the Southwest Research Institute, pointed out that prior to the 20th century, women were rarely allowed to become scientists, engineers, or explorers. And while we've done some work to correcting that balance, it's so recent that most of the women are still with us today. Singer calls it a historical lag. But some in the field are helping close the gap. Catherine Nish, a planetary scientist at Western University, has successfully proposed the names of three craters after women scientists, Elisabetta Pirazzo, Marie Tharp, and Annie Easley. And as for artist Bettina Forget, her Women with Impact project has been exhibited at an art gallery in Quebec and at a planetarium in Montreal, moving forward as more craters are slowly but surely named after women, adding to Forget's workload, she's expanding into 3D modeling of the craters. As one arm of the project, she's working on a sort of 3D printed stamp modeled after the craters that can be attached to the soles of shoes. Quoting the New York Times, she plans to ship the stamps to female scientists around the world and ask them to record their experiences creating their own creators in a project called One Small Step. End quote. As Disneyland revs up to open its Avengers campus on June 4th, more and more news is starting to leak out, including news that they're apparently hawking a $100 sandwich at one of the new California resort restaurants. So technically, it's meant to serve six to eight people, kind of like a party sub, but they didn't add that detail until people started sharing their horror at the price. And as AV Club says, quote, We all know that people are just going to try and eat this massive serving of salami, rosemary, ham, provolone on toasted focaccia with marinara dipping sauce and an arugula side salad as some sort of YouTube challenge, end quote. The sandwich will be on offer at the Ant-Man and the Wasp-themed Pym Test Kitchen. So it's a vaguely science lab-themed restaurant playing on Ant-Man and the Wasp's ability to both shrink and blow up objects to giant sizes. The menu also features items like the subatomic chicken sandwich, the molecular meltdown, which is a beer cocktail with ice cream and marshmallows, and a PB3 superb sandwich, which is a PB&J with bananas and candied bacon served on Pym Particle Bread. 
This restaurant has one of the most chaotic vibes I've ever heard. But alright, so the Pimini sandwich in question does come in a single serving for $14.99, or you can get it quantum-sized for $99.99 to feed a whole group. Food & Wine notes that the quantum-sized Pimini sandwich is now one of the most expensive food items you can buy at the park. Sitting alongside the $138 Porterhouse Steak for Two at Disneyland Hotel's Steakhouse 55. Woof. In other news, there is yet another Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie coming out, this time starring Timothy Chalamet as the candy factory man himself, Willy Wonka. The film Wonka is set to be an origin story of the chocolatier, which means no Charlie Bucket. It also marks the first film adaptation not based on the original two novels by Roald Dahl, although there is plenty of fodder regarding Willy Wonka's past in both works, as well as the wealth of unpublished and cut manuscripts from Dahl. Quoting AV Club, Like the 1971 Gene Wilder adaptation, the prequel is said to be a musical. And if tossing a bow tie on a fancy lad named Timothy Chalamet and making him do a little song and dance wasn't twee enough for you, Wonka will be directed by Paul King, the man behind those adorable Paddington movies film Twitter loves so dang much. End quote. I'm mildly curious how they're going to handle some of the racist colonial overtones of the story. You know, a big part of Wonka's past was exploring the world and basically stealing crops, recipes, and human beings from native lands and taking them back to his factory in England. So, like, have fun updating that one for Timothy Chalamet's brand, Warner Brothers. But cynicism aside, I remain a big fan of the story despite its problems, so I'm pretty excited to see how this goes, and if it means we get a retcon the Johnny Depp version, even better. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.